0: I'm re-recording this, although I have made, I think, scarcely (laughs) more progress on understanding uh, the idea. So I'm deep into this book, a couple hundred pages into this Menand book called The Free World, Art and Culture in the Cold War, something like that is the subtitle. And I did not know that there was a very famous article put out by or published in the Partisan Review in 1939, uh, that was titled Kitchen Avant-Garde. And it was a, it was an attempt to explain avant-garde art, which I mean, look, I'm again, I'm going to delete my prior podcast. So if I, I, I won't make explicit reference to it or if I make reference to it, I'll cash out what I, what I said earlier so that you don't have to listen to that one to get this one. But uh, I'm not an art historian and I'm not an artist, I'm a writer <laughs> and I'm not even a writer about art. So yeah, I'm not gonna venture into really difficult terrain in art criticism because I'm frankly not qualified to do that. Um, but, but avant-garde art is not a difficult thing to grasp historically. You know, it it arose roughly, it was, it became ascendant in the decades that classical or, you know, representational in painting, representational painting means what you think it means. It means represent the thing that you're looking at correctly. So the idea is if you're looking at a tree in and I'm munging these terms together, but for the purposes here, I think it's okay. In classical art, or in other words, in, in, in uh realist or representational painting, it's good or bad depending on how faithfully it reproduces or brings out or otherwise, well really reproduces the you know the whatever the scene is, whatever the image is, and so you know, for a very long time, people who would, I mean, still to this day, I mean, there's a kind there. I think there's a there's a a kind of bias in favor of viewing art as a craft, in viewing an artist or a painter as a as a kind of as a as someone who has learned a craft, and so there's some technical skill involved and some maybe some talent. And so on. And so, right? So, and that certainly would be borne out in the classical era of art and representational painting up to about the mid 19th century where, look, if you can't, I mean, even if you take something like Suzanne and you say, look, you know, paint these, uh, this, this basket of apples, draw and paint these basket of apples, like people, generally speaking, the average person on the street is not going to be able to do that, you know, and there's a reason because they're not a painter and Cezanne was right. So that kind of just by degrees, there was no key moment, but in the late part of the 19th century and then certainly in the 20th century, suddenly there was this just rejection of representationalism in painting by painters And that was very strange because what else do you paint if not, you know, scenes like, you know, the Mona Lisa is a painting of a very curiously, how's the word, impish looking young woman with, there's a sort of haunting quality to her look and it's there I finally figured this out by the way just as an aside is when I was reading a biography of, of of Da Vinci like why is the Mona Lisa considered one of the greatest paintings ever? And it's because if you look if you actually look at the Mona Lisa if you look at her face you can see her emotions and they change. Like you can see oh she's kind of I think a good word is kind of impish. Right? Like there's something She's smiling. She has a secret that she's not telling you. And you can see it in her eyes and in, in, in the slight crook in her mouth, right? And then on the other hand, she's just posing for a painting. And on the other hand, there's something, and it just keeps, it keeps changing. And you it did like, Da Vinci was able to create the illusion of facial emotional expressions changing in a two dimensional static image. And that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. And suddenly people weren't doing that. And avant-garde came, you know, originally there, there were many strands of avant-garde art in general. But in painting you had uh, surrealism and you had, now I'm completely blanking on uh, what Pollock was. Well, they called it action painting, but there was another word for it. It was, it ended up being called action painting because the idea was that there was the performance of the painter was what made it art, which look, (laughs) there's still, I think many people, not just non-artistically sensitive people like myself, like me, um, (laughs) still to this day, many people say like, so what, what exactly, right? And, but Pollock would be a good example. And then you had, you had, um, there's all these different out, like cubism. And then, uh, with, um, uh, I just, I'm sorry. I can't remember the name other than cubism, but there's a main, main huge branch of, um, avant-garde art. And it basically abstraction. There we go. I think it's well, it was, called, it was also called abstract art, but there's a, su- there's a subcategory under abstract art. Anyway, the point is, is we all know what this stuff was, right? Everybody's seen cubism, and there were elements of Picasso was a chameleon in the art world, and he really was an artistic genius. You can argue about the merits of somebody like Jackson Pollock, but Picasso could paint anything. He could paint anything. He invented entire movements and then abandoned them in the next decade of his long, highly prolific career. So, But we all know, we understand these various elements and we understand surrealism, right? And we understand abstract paintings and cubism and the kind of flight from realism that all that represented. So the piece that came out was, look, why did this happen? Because on the face of it, it shouldn't happen, right? Like, this doesn't seem like art to the modern mind, right? It doesn't seem like, that's not what we mean by art, or at least that's what we thought we didn't mean by, we. we, we that's what the idea was for centuries, and then now suddenly this is art. What happened and why? And why then in history, in the early part and and the mid part of the 20th century did this rejection of representationalism and classic art generally. Why did that? Cause you had this also with Stravinsky and, and you had this in music as well, where you had dissonance. There's a field I, I know a little bit more about having being, you know, I used to play classical piano and I studied music and all that stuff. Um, but still lacking in a very complete explanation. But you had, I think it was Stravinsky, where you have these really dissonant chords that are making a point, but they're not classically beautiful or enjoyable. And so the so then the intellectual community says, well, we've got to figure out why this is happening because that's just what intellectuals do, among other things, when they're not screwing up the world. <laughs> well, I mean... No. Or, or fixing the world is they try to understand what's going on at moments in history, particularly the ones that they happen to be, you know, themselves living in and through. So there was a piece that there's a really famous piece that came out and said, look, what happens is the industrial, this is a really a gloss. And I actually haven't read the paper from the Parson Review, but I am going to look it up and read it because of course I, tr- I treated kitsch The concept of kitsch was resonant and redolent for me when I wrote the myth, of course, and I had not gone through this avenue to this idea that uh, modern kind of commodity culture creates, and for me specifically, techno-scientific thinking kind of encourages kitschy culture. That was the connection that I thought was really true. And it was just, as a literary device, I think it had a lot of legs. Um, I actually came to that idea by reading Milan Kundera, who wrote the, um, the, uh, the, uh, unlight- the Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is a novel. He was a novelist. He was Czech-born, born in Prague, actually, I think. And then he fled, because, remember, the communists invaded invaded Prague, famously, notoriously, infamously in 1968. I stood in that square, by the way, in Wenceslas Square. And now it's just full of tourists from all over the world and it's really this big place. And Prague is this really amazing, really amazing place. It's a really an amazing city. And there's still, in Old Town, you still go all the way back to the Middle Ages. So it's like really like mid or even early Middle Ages, I think. Uh, so the communists didn't destroy the city, but what they did do was destroy the culture. So all the intellectuals were basically were forced to recant or they committed suicide or they just disappeared. So there was no bohemian or, in other words, his Czech resistance to the incursion of, Soviet, of, of communism in the Soviet Union in 68. And so Kundera bailed and went to... Uh, France, and lived his career in France. And I, I don't, I'm not sure if he wrote. I think he wrote in French, but he was a Czech-born writer who was profoundly, I think, scarred by that Soviet experience. And it comes out very trenchantly in the unbearable lightness of being, where he he talks about centuries of Bohemian culture being replaced by what he what he called it, kitsch, and. I seized upon that and said, what is this? Okay, so we all know what kitsch is. It's like, it's like the cute little kitten poster that you put and it's just cheesy sentimentality, right? We all know the American version of kitsch, but kitsch is a German word and it has this long history of trying to, there's actually this interesting philosophy of kitsch. Like why does it get produced? How does it stick around? Why do people like it so much to the extent that they do? And what does it mean, if anything, right? Like, what is kitsch? Because it's a kind of, it's just, it's shitty art, (laughs) really. It just, it's very, very cheesy artwork or decor that people generally recognize. And this, I don't want to end this up in an elite, some elitism comment. That's not my point. I'm trying to choose my words very carefully here but kitsch is almost universally recognized as shitty. It just is, right? Like it doesn't, not because you have your nose up in the air and you're so, just everybody knows that it's kitsch. It's just universally recognized as kitsch. And nobody thinks that kitsch is particularly powerful human expression. It's sentimental stuff, man, you know? It's like Grease the play or something at best. And so yeah so but the but when what happens so kitsch is also it's a way of just extinguishing the flame of a culture that could have burned brighter it's really it can be very invidious actually and that's why i included it in the myth that's why i i chose to introduce that concept and develop it to the extent that i did now what i read this morning was an exposition it turns out that uh, was a, a, a Uh, next position that I wish to finish the thought, I wish that I would have encountered this when I was writing the book. Although I don't know, I don't know how much it would have actually helped in the final copy because that section couldn't have been too long because my book is about artificial intelligence, not kitsch. So, uh, but it would have been nice. There's a whole, this the uh, not only does menand treat this in his book that i'm reading currently this is a 2020 book called the free world that Men- louis menand wrote who wrote the metaphysical club and i discovered menand by reading his earlier that earlier work the metaphysical club where the scientist and philosopher charles saunders purse is prominently prominently figures in the metaphysical club he was the founder of the this kind of semi mythological I mean there was a metaphysical club but no one knows exactly how serious anyone took it. There are accounts of it in the in the record of these guys. William James, the kind of founder of American psychology was another member perhaps some guys that are not well known like Chauncey uh Chauncey Wright. Yeah, Chauncey Wright who was a was a philosopher at the time that was very, very well known at the time, but he's in fact completely forgotten now. And uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, actually, senior, the great Supreme Court judge, liberal uh, judge, who was I mean, he was a, a, a well-known intellectual and was involved in a number of very high-profile cases because he, he ended up sitting on the Supreme Court judge. At that time, he was a, as a lawyer. He actually reportedly w- was part of this metaphysical club. That was Lewis Manan's first book. And I knew Peirce prior to reading the metaphysical club. I knew Peirce going all the way back to undergraduate philosophy of science discussions where you have a framework where you're talking about whatever, whatever it is, you know, ideas in the philosophy of science, you need to say, well, how do you know that this is a good explanation? And you get into questions of inference and Persean abduction comes up because it's also a kind of hypothesis generation, and that's important in the philosophy of science. It's actually the under—it's the redheaded stepchild of the scientific method, right? Like, how, like, well, how do you have the scientific method at all if you don't have somebody come up with a hypothesis? And where does that come from? So yeah, so I so so I knew about Peirce from basically from philosophy, um, and then I had and but then I knew about Menand. And I knew a lot more biographical information about purse through the metaphysical club. And then now I'm reading this, the free, the free world. And in the free world, there's a section, there's a famous getting all the way back, coming all the way back full circle. There's a, there was a very formative uh, paper called kitsch and the avant-garde. I can't remember the name of the author now. But he was a, it was published in 1939 and he was in, you know, it wasn't trilling. Uh, and um, it was published in Partisan Review, which was a well-known journal at the time. And it had a big effect on how people, the lens through which people could kind of come to understand the, the avant-garde movement in culture, in art. And what that, as, like I said, I haven't read the paper yet, though I will, uh But what the argument, the argument was in essence, in in a nutshell, that since the Industrial Revolution, there has been this general threat to a healthy culture of ideas uh, from basically the commodification, like basically there has been a increasing creeping commodification of the products, the cultural products that we make. They turn into real products. In other words, they become market ideas, and then when they become market ideas, the sort of investment that we need to maintain a healthier, kind of deeper, more probing culture, it that, that is strangled, basically. That's, that's attenuated from effectively from the the industrial revolution set in motion the gradual attenuation of a healthy culture and one kind of one sort of consequence of that and also evidence for that thesis is the uh widespread adoption of kitsch everywhere and so this guy was saying like fuck we have, excuse my language, I'm trying to figure out who my audience is for this, whether, whether I can shoot from the hip or not. Um, so he was saying, look, one way to understand, one way to, okay, so we have, we have, we have kitsch as a kind of consequence of industrializing in the, in, the, in the Western world. And you can fill in the dots there, but we can all kind of see what's going on with that. Just think of, I don't know, Pokemon and trinkets and everything else, right? And of Hollywood, by the way. <laughs> Think of Hollywood. Um and then and then on the other hand, right, so so then the so the question is not about how to like so that's the explanation for why kitsch seems to be growing like a fungus. Uh right. And, and then the the question is like, how does avant garde then why would avant garde spring up in a kitschy commodified culture? in the Western world, in this kind of hyper-capitalism that, right? I mean, you have to understand too, at this point you had legitimate intellectuals who were i actually thought Stalin wasn't a, like a maniacal psychopath. And there was a, there was a very much a, an, an interest and a curiosity about communism as a potential antidote to fascism. And fascism by 1939 was fairly evident, but Stalinism was not. And so, so the but the idea was then like, how do you explain avant-garde? Did people just get bored with representationalism, or is it a reaction against, um, you know what's happening—the uh, the commodification or the kitschification of coal? is is the avant-garde a kind of outgrowth of kitschifying everything, <laughs> or is it a reaction and an antidote and an attempted response to it? And this guy, his his response was that his thesis, I think was that the avant, the avant garde movement is a kind of push back against the spread of kitsch. And I don't have, and I'm, I can't venture any further into that because I haven't read the piece yet, but that was the, that was the general idea. And just, I mean, just like, I'm just going to probably cut this short now. So that was the, that was the piece I wanted to describe. But the other thing I wanted to do was make generally a plug for Menand The book is fascinating. It's just about how the cold like what happened effectively to American culture in the 20 years from 1945, roughly, to 1965, although obviously we're talking 1939 right now, so but the the main idea was the Cold War basically was I mean, the Cold War was just launched by Truman's speech in 1947, and it had a profound impact on almost everything the entire planet was doing. Suddenly we had a couple of superpowers and we had just rapid decolonization. So you had all these countries that were living under these empires from Britain and France, and to some smaller extent, actually the United States, the major European powers, had cut up almost the entire world. And then after World War I, and then definitely after World War II, suddenly you had the United Nations and you just have this rapid, rapid change from the world that we knew a few decades ago to this completely new world. And part of that new world was this really radical shift in art and literature. Look at Ginsburg's Howl, for instance, like this new poetry. And it all came out of this basically, you know, this 40s and 50s uh, was the huge change. People tend to think of the 1960s, and I think in particular the latter part or the later part of the 1960s as being this period of rapid, change in the culture. But actually the culture really was changing with the beat generation and was really changing with Jackson Pollock. And this was late forties and early fifties. The average American might have been the suburban, you know, worker for IBM that we parody now, or we depict now What we think of the 1950s, this real conformist picture, right? Remember what's his name? Reisman and the, the lonely crowd the the uh right about like what why what happened why are we all driving like why are we all living so far away and we have these kind of lonely commutes and this kind of really atomistic society and there's this just real sense of a loss right like a loss of tradition and a loss of all, all social bonds and all this sorts of all this sort of thing I mean that's a terrible exposition of Reisman, by the way. But I never read The Lonely Crowd, so you know, I, I may mean, give me a break. But though, but the general idea though is that we have we have this we paint this picture of the 1950s as being like really conformist and stagnant artistically and, and with regard to literature. So I mean, the, and actually I kind of had this view before I started reading Menand, where we have these really interesting periods in the 20s. With, the, with Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Dos Passos and all these guys in the 20s and 30s. And you have all this unrest and the, and the lead up to, to the Second World War. And then by the 50s, sort of, well, okay, we have this world that's licking its wounds from the, the Second World War. And everyone just kind of goes into this kind of big bureaucratic conformist mode. No, that's not true at all. I mean that that was true, but part of the complexity, part of what's so so fascinating about the Cold War period is the 50s was that and it was also this huge radical change in almost every aspect of culture. That was happening in the 50s and in the and in the late 40s it was on the heels of the war of the, the end of world war two that you had that like Pollock's work, for instance, just to take one example, that was early fifties. I think he died in 56 or something. He was drunk and he crashed a car. Um, and was, was, he, he died early. So his career ended in 56, but, um, so yeah, so, so the, I, so how do I pull this together? Um, I guess I would say the idea. So I guess I would say this one thing, one value I have from struggling with this idea of kitsch because it, let's say it, it emerges or appears frequently. It doesn't just, we don't just have a kitschy period in culture and then, Oh, we've, We've extirpated our kitsch. It doesn't kind of work that way. It keeps coming back. And then we have periods where you really have, you have a feeling in which things are changing. Some people, conservatives, will say they're just all changing for the worst. And people who are liberal in Lionel Trilling's sense, by the way, not in any specific sense, but just in the idea of progress, right? This idea that we're in a progress, almost invariably will take any change from the past as being positive positive. And of course that's not true. And of course it wasn't true necessarily. I, you know, as far as I can tell, a lot of the art that was generated, but it's very, was not necessarily of a lot of value, but it, but it's very, very, I guess what I'm I'm, I'm, I'm punting on this question of kitsch and avant-garde and this connection between the 20th century culture that was increasingly commodified to keep using that word, and then the also the the disappearance of these classical modes of we like our ideas of quality also went through such radical transformation, and so I guess what I would say is like that dynamic is very interesting, and because in some sense avant-garde stuff is a reaction to kitsch. Kitsch is not avant-garde art. Kitsch is not. Cubism or Picasso or Pollock or Stravinsky, that's not Kitsch. Uh, That stuff is strange and unsettling, and that's not what Kitsch is. So, in a sense, it was like, yeah, it was like, it's unclear exactly how it was a reaction to Kitsch, but it damn well wasn't Kitsch. And then I think, like, leading up into our our present era, what I want to do is, like, I want to mine that area of history for insight into why because I think now we really really do have this problem with we have primarily a, a we're sitting on top this is the way I actually view this we're sitting on top of this technology base now that is almost intrinsically manipulative because the major tech companies basically only make a profit by getting you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do I mean that's just that's actually what's going on, and that's not my argument in this. I'm not going to get into that other than just to say that right now. I'm just going to blurt that and say, like, okay. But I think one of the things that's happening is we don't even have an avant-garde movement today. We have a return of all kinds of just stupid-ass bullshit on the web. There's The web is just overwhelmingly... The, the web is just there is so much kitsch on the web that I don't even know where to start, right? It just, and it's, and it's extremely difficult for me. Like it's, I have a very hard time imagining how anything really interesting and deep artistically and culturally is really going to come out of the web. And so one of the prime, the really, really terrible dilemmas of the modern era is, is since we seem to be inextricably living in now the internet or on top of it, as it were, and the, our are the kind of the preconditions for us doing almost any communication and interaction involve the web now. And the web seems to be a giant machine for generating and encouraging shitty culture and kitsch. You know, it's very unclear how we're going to, it's very unclear how we're ever going to, enter into a period where there's something really new on offer for intellectuals and writers like myself. And maybe everything that I'm saying is just wrong and I should try to drink the Kool-Aid as it were, but that's certainly not going to happen. And I'm certainly going to, my second book is going to be about making this case as strongly as I can. And no, I'm not saying that everything on the web is wrong or any kind of easy, dismissal of anything like that but I am saying I do see this connection between and by the way I have so much more to work with now because here I thought that 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 idea of kitsch was sort of more sui generis than than it really turned out to be it turns out that people back in the 1930s and 1940s were wondering about that same thing as well and then but the the, the connection was something like avant-garde music and art and poetry and so on and the beat stuff with Ginsburg. And that cast of characters. Well, we don't even have anything like that as far as I can tell. What do we have, like, electronic Like, it's not even clear. So we don't even have a movement that's uncomfortable, right? Like, the avant-garde stuff was a legitimate reaction and change from the past. If you look, like, so there was a sense in which something really shifted, and there was something new on offer, and there was something shocking and of course and then it got connected later with Sartre and existentialism as a humanism and all this other stuff and there was this entire kind of fabric that got was getting stitched together in the wake of the destruction of the world from totalitarianism and from the rapid ascendancy of industrialization and and so but that avant-garde stuff I often hear conservatives or conservative minded people anyway really rue that entire that period of America I'll just speak for American culture cultural history because so much of that that avant-garde m- movement seemed to have been just, I don't know like one really one really maybe admittedly kind of shallow and and too quick way of saying it is just really shitty stuff seemed to be emerging everywhere. But it was it had the virtue of being shocking, shocking is kind of my point, I guess. And it had the virtue of being not kitschy. And so it, ha- it had this it had this idea, like somebody like Sartre or Camus, even maybe or merleau Ponte, or some pick who you want or uh, you know, I don't know who else you want to piss. Sartre would be the best example, really. Somebody like Sartre would say that there is this, we can we can actually explicate philosophically in writing what's happened to the human condition. Certainly Hannah Arendt engaged on this project. Um, and I'll have to talk about her in some other podcast. But we'll say like, yeah, I mean, there's this like feeling that we have this, we have emerged in the modern era where we kind of we we are we're unanchored now to tradition in such a way that our central experience, our primary experience, is like angst and you know nausea to write the title of one of his first books. Why should it like we don't we don't have? There's a sense in which we're we're unhinged from our own what we thought was our essence, and so we have to kind of reinvent ourselves. And part of that project was kind of doing away with traditional art or challenging it with avant-garde stuff. And so you there is this picture where people are trying to remake the world with ideas. Not, you know, and it like if you fast forward to 2020, 2021, certainly people are trying to do that. For instance, me. <laughs> I'm trying to do that and my next book I hope makes a contribution. But so Pete, and I'm certainly not alone. <laughs> there are other people, but there is a general I have the feeling as a writer and as an intellectual, I do have the feeling that we're really bucking up against the stream trying to get, right? Like we really have been subsumed into this techno kitschy culture to the point where it's difficult, it's really difficult. It's, it would be hard to see even, I mean, the, the failure of imagination today is one of the core problems. I can't even, and I, if I myself am I'm vict- a victim of this, I can't even see something like some Nuevo, you know, avant garde movement even taking shape to any major degree other than on these websites and tweeted around. Like, I mean, really, like taking root in the culture, like, say, something like the woke movement took root, right? Like, that's what I mean by taking root, where it really changes the discussion and everybody suddenly must be aware of it. Where is that movement in art, in literature? What is that? And and it it isn't woke stuff because that's not like... And I'm not going to get into that whole ball of wax right now, that whole... I'm not going to jump into that problem, but I think I would certainly be willing some other time to explain why. Yeah, that's not what I mean. And it's not because... You know, it's not a for political reasons. It's that, no, that's not, that's the absence of culture. That's the shutting down of all the arguments. That's not open, that's not the culture changing. It's locking up. So yeah, you can't have that. I don't want that as somebody is trying to optimize, like I'm trying to write. And oh, and so I'll make one other point, which is just going to have to be a tack on, but something else that I think is relevant to all this And this has to remain a loose tapestry at this point. But Trilling, Lionel Trilling, who many will know, if not, he was a famous thinker and writer, and he wrote something called the, something liberalism. I forgot what it's called now. But it was this really, really fantastically popular treatment of liberalism under the aegis of one. Like, he's not talking about traditional liberalism where you have something like free markets and free choices. And he's not talking about liberalism under the banner of communism or socialism. You, you have democratic socialism and liberalism there means something like equality. And that's the, that that's also economically the one, the concept of liberalism that the Americans tend to play with the most Americans in American liberals tend to be just obsessed with equality and well, equality seems like a good thing, but that's another long discussion that I'm not going to get into. Yeah, of course, equality seems like a good thing unless there's no equality and that as a brute fact and you'll ruin the world trying to and it's not even a good idea, by the way, because it's there's something wrong with the idea, right? But it is beguiling, and certainly, at least prima facie, it seems like, man, if we could just make everything equal, that would be fan-fucking-tastic. But anyway, there's a lot of different definitions of liberalism, and Trilling treats all of these in this famous book on liberalism, and then, oh, I wish I could remember the title, but there's only one word, there's an adjective in front of it, liberalism. You can just Google Lionel Trilling, and but the, the point is, is that... Um, he gives it one broad brush, and I think it was pretty convincing that's why the book was it was read and reread and discussed and he said basically the, the the what undergirds all liberalism is this confidence in the future that as like human society just as it goes forward in time also improves so liberalism qua progressivism as progressivism and that was the that was the kind of general definition that he was working with. And um, I'm not doing this very much justice, but this is the basic idea. And the other idea was that actually all of literature contradicts that, unfortunately. And this was actually, I think, a brilliant, brilliant point. And it's not, it's not by way, it's not a it's not so that you can reject liberalism. It's so that you can see literature. That's how I look at this. Right. Like, that's how I look. Like, what does, how does literature function in culture? One of the things it does is it constantly frustrates this too sanguine view of the right way to look at politics and the right way to look at life is to be liberal in the sense of progressive. And one right, one way that literature constantly frustrates that is, and by the way, when something like the Soviet Union Officially gains the reins of power in Russia. What is one of the first things that happens? All the Solzhenitsyns have to fuck off You can't write anymore because literature is all about uh, It's all about explaining how those simple pictures are never Adequate to describe the human condition all good almost all almost without exception good literature obfuscates ideology it obfuscates simple pictures and simple worldviews. It just means, well, yeah, like that's true, and also this and also all this other stuff is true too. And that's just what good literature does. And so Trilling said, okay, here's a here's a view of here's a view of liberalism, which isn't communism, and here's why literature is always going to be unhappily married to that view. And I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons that's fascinating is that, well, how many, and look, I'm liberal in many, many ways as well, and I'm libertarian in other ways, and I just generally don't like those labels. I don't get a lot of mileage out of them, and I don't tend to line up very well. Like, the what I choose to think is true or not true tends to go across from conservative to liberal and back again on the American spectrum. But I mean, one of the ways that that's interesting is, is like, if you want to be progressivist in this kind of way that people were really, really struggling to understand in the wake of, the, as Stalinism was becoming more and more of a threat, people were saying like, actually, the, the point that I should have inserted was the, our understanding of American liberalism grew out of the rejection of communists because at first, the progressives were all communists. And then everybody said, wait a minute, there's something fucking seriously wrong about being a Stalin. They were actually Stalinists. And and, And of course, Stalinism was the first thing to get rejected. Then communism writ large. And then we ended up with something like the American liberalism that we have now. And that took shape in the 1930s and 40s. So that's why I'm highlighting this idea of liberalism because this is where this concept that we now take for granted. it sort of emerged out of this area in American history and world history, but I'm just focusing on the American aspect to this. So but that idea itself had some of the roots of the Stalinist problem in it, the communist problem in it, which is and which Trilling, very much to his credit, pointed out, that really, really good literature is never going is going to technically speaking always kind of contradict and put at odds and tension that view, but we need that view, right? We well we need some. I mean, we would assume that you need some antidote to American conservatism. You need something like, like I certainly would say this. You need American liberalism, right? But it is odd. It is, And I think something something that Trilling was pointing out is that people don't actually see this. They're embracing all this literature that's actually contradicting the message of their own liberalism. (laughs) And there are many examples of this. So I thought that was interesting. But the main point was that that struggle is what I want to resurrect in 2021. And the next book I want to write, I want to talk about our time here now and where we are. And I want to try to illuminate that as much as I can. That's my, so that's my podcast. That one went long. Bye-bye. Almost 45 minutes. Okay. Thank you.